Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whenever something terrible happens, someone always asks, how could a just God allow bad things to happen? Unfortunately, the question is silly and unbearably self-entitled. Bad things happen because that's how the world works. Sometimes people cause suffering, and sometimes suffering just happens. Why? Because death and suffering are a part of life. Every human being who has ever lived has had to die. So on what basis can anyone ask, why did this person have to die? Death and destruction in nature are a necessary component of the natural world and ultimately contribute to the continuation of life. So on what basis can anyone call them evil? These things happen beyond the scope of human control because, far from mastering the natural world, human beings are subject to it. We may not like it, but that is the way things are. For scripture, it's not a question of why things happen, but of how the things that happen in the world can be co-opted as teachers for the cause of the gospel. In Mark, transformed from the pain of human despair and fear into the pain of birth-giving for the life of the world. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 192 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have spoken about the temple. We've contrasted the temple with the governing authority, with the Roman Empire. We've talked about the juxtaposition in Mark of the Herodians and the Pharisees and how this presents the false choice between the power of the temple and the power of the state. And here, at the beginning of 13, we see where all of this is headed. It's a fulfillment of the prophetic teaching of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, that will later be played out on the cross in the Markan narrative. But here we are at the beginning of chapter 13, and we're going to see exactly what God thinks of human infrastructure. Buildings made of stone. And it's not just about buildings, it's about all of the things that we place stock in that are passing away. So the link to the prophets, Richard, isn't just about the destruction of the temple. You've talked often, and I'm sure this will shine through in your commentary on Hosea, about the people's desire for security. And stones, things that we build, give us this false sense of security. This is so appropriate right after the section on the widow's offering and the widow's might because Jesus is trying to make the point 
that it's not the one who is big and powerful and gives a little bit, but the one who is weak and gives what she can, even more than what she can. It's not what one is, it's what one does. And even back before this, we were talking about the importance of understanding Jesus as the reference point, because the problem we always saw, going back to the point you just made, was that people wanted Jesus to be a new Caesar, because they understood David as the new Caesar. And Caesar was always their reference point, no matter who they were. If they were the Sadducees who were well ensconced in the temple, or if they're Herodians who were just trying to get back on the throne of Judea, Caesar was the reference. And Jesus is trying to move them away from this. And this has been happening all the way since the loaves and the fish, that they couldn't understand, well, what's Jesus going to do without more food? Jesus can't do anything unless he's got bread, just like Caesar can't do anything if he's not giving bread to the people. The widow's might can't buy security. It's useless as protection money. It certainly can't buy prestige, so it's of no value to those who are impressed with Roman power or the honor that is given to the scribes and the Pharisees in public places. The widow's might can't buy food for anyone. It's of no value if the things that you value pertain to Caesar. That's the point. That's where we're headed. And it's as though the biblical story, specifically Mark, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, has run out of ways to try to get us to change our priority. So now we're going to enter into the truly hyperbolic phase of the Gospel of Mark, which again culminates on Golgotha. I can't stress that enough. The cross itself is hyperbole. In what narrative do you find a father who is the protagonist becoming victorious over his enemies by allowing them to take the life of his son. Where do you see this? As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. People go to Washington, D.C. specifically to see the great buildings with the giant statues of our forefathers and our leaders and the Pentagon, which I don't know if you've ever noticed whenever they talk about the Pentagon in the news, do they show an office? No, they show an aerial view of this giant Pentagon shaped building because it's so impressive to see. Interestingly, when we were attacked on 9-11, we saw very few images of the Pentagon. We didn't see so many views of this big, impressive building anymore because we understood how it was no longer as impressive. And it was only about rebuilding it as quickly as possible because our buildings show our strength. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus is not saying... Well, over time, things decay and seasons change and, you know, life goes in cycles and eventually these will go away and new ones will... That's not how he's talking. He's being very deliberate. It's not just that they're going to pass away. They're going to be torn down. And this is the prophetic language. It's the prophetic mechanism. I've tried to highlight this in the last couple of episodes. That... Someone will destroy your building, an invading army. There may be a reason. It might be because you were foolish enough to revolt against the Romans. It might be because Caesar had a bad day. It doesn't really matter. 
your building will be destroyed. And when it happens, know that it is the Lord and not Caesar who tore it down. And this was already foreshadowed when Jesus entered into the temple and cast out the money changers. This was really a prophetic statement. It wasn't just he was mad about money. That wasn't what he was doing. It wasn't because of the money changers themselves. This was a prophetic act. He quotes from the prophets about how the house is going to be destroyed. The question, does God cause hurricanes, is an invalid question. The real question is, can man control hurricanes? And if the answer is no, if you're scriptural, then the hurricane is in the palm of God's hand. Either you believe that or you don't. It's not a question of the physical world and science. It's a question of your stance. And if you believe that the hurricane or the destruction of your building, whatever you think the actual cause was, if you take the stance, if you trust in the biblical stance that it comes from the palm of God's hand, then whatever it is, whatever caused it, or however arbitrary it was, for you it will be judgment unto life. It's just as invalid when religious fundamentalists look at a disaster and try to figure out who sinned to bring the disaster. No, Jesus keeps saying that's the wrong question. The disaster happened. You can't control it. It's in the palm of God's hand. But since you have the word of God, learn how to submit in the face of disaster the way I'm going to submit to the Roman authorities on Golgotha. Scripture is a word that forces us to see the world in a particular way. And we already know, neuroscientists can already show us, that what we see is not simply the light that's hitting our eye. It's the sense of that light that our brain makes of it. So this is a way of understanding the world that enters through our ears, the word of God, through scripture, that then interprets those things that we see, those things that we hear in a particular way, so that, as you say, you understand that this is God who's doing it. Now, did God create the photons to hit your eye in a particular way? That's not how the word of God works. The word of God functions completely inside your head so that you see the events in the way that scripture wants you to see these events. This is the difference between the light of human reason and divine light. The word of God through your ear reshapes the light in your mind. It's a beautiful way of phrasing it, Richard, and it fits very nicely with the biblical admonition that the eye is the lamp of the body. It's interesting how even the ancients in their belief that we project light were still pointing to the same underlying mechanism that science has now revealed, that reality is subjective. And to trust in scripture is to allow scripture to bring divine objectivity to your subjective experience of reality so that you don't see an enemy, you see a brother. So that you don't see a homeless beggar, you see a person who was set apart by God to teach you to give up your lust for money and wealth and possession. So that when you see a hurricane, you don't see financial loss for you you see the suffering of your brother. And when you see war, you don't see the wickedness of your enemy, but the judgment of God. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. And I just want to say once again, this is the second time we've come back to this. 
We heard of this first when he was sitting opposite the temple and pointing out the value of the thing that we don't value. And now he's sitting in judgment again opposite the temple. I'm going to tear every stone down and I'm going to sit in judgment and explain to you what's going to happen when those stones come tumbling down. And when these disciples go and take him aside to talk to him privately, it makes me recall the event when they asked him who's supposed to be sitting on the right hand. They want to be in Jesus's inner circle. Everyone wants to be in Jesus's inner circle. They don't want to be judged by him. They want to sit with him while he judge and say, you said it, Jesus. Give him heck, Jesus. You tell him. Not only are they presumptuous, as you point out, Richard, but they are setting themselves against the Lord's anointed on Mount Zion. I love Psalm 2. I keep coming back to it. The Lord sets his Messiah on the holy mountain, and he scoffs at all of the other kings. And now Peter, James, and John, and Andrew are going to question him while he, the anointed one of Psalm 2, is sitting on the throne in judgment against the temple on Mount Zion? What are you going to ask him? Why don't you like stones, Jesus? I don't understand what your frustration is. We try to do good works in the temple. Yeah, I see your point about the widow's might, but imagine if we had more of those mites. Think what we could do, Jesus. We should get more widows. We can donate more mites, and we can eventually have an addition on the temple. And the Lord is saying, that's your problem. <laughs> Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. Okay, Jesus, we like following you and all of that, but we need some assurances here if we're going to side with you against the temple because there's going to be consequences because the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, they can put together more than a couple widow's mites against us. These men are saying, tell us privately when these things are going to be. Tell us what's going to happen. They completely neglect, at best forgot, but more likely neglected the very basic teaching, which is they are to be spreading the seed. They want to keep the seed for themselves. Now, Jesus does, in verse 5, what all good teachers do when their students come and ask a question, and their question is motivated by a mistake. A good teacher does not answer the question. A good teacher coaches to their mistake. So he begins by addressing the problem of being misled because those questioning him are already misled. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Again, parenthetically, because you're obviously misled. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. And the first of these deceivers is Caesar. And by the way, the Herodians are just as bad. The scribes and the Pharisees are just as bad. Everybody's walking around claiming to be right, claiming to be divine, claiming to be the person that you should listen to. The thing here is that when Jesus says, don't be misled, he's saying in the story, listen to me. But what he's really saying when he says, listen to me, is listen to my words, which come from the Torah. The Torah is your guide. And if you still don't understand why this building has to be torn down, if your response is anything other than amen, you have not been following the instruction of the Old Testament, and you already, out of the gate, are in jeopardy. This is the reason why they're always asking the question, are you the one? 
because they're looking for these external criteria. They want him to look like Caesar. But guess what? There's always some strong man who's going to claim to be Caesar. There's always somebody who's going to come and talk smack and talk about how tough he is and how strong he is and how he's going to get rid of these darn people. And then, sure enough, he gets wiped out by the Romans and then someone else comes along. He's unmistakably unlike Caesar. But that's someone who you don't want to follow. That's why it's so easy to be led astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Don't be afraid of the survival question. Don't. It's unstated in Mark, but it's the fear of the power of death. I'm going to show you that you shouldn't be afraid because my trust in my father is so absolute, I'm going to let the Romans defeat me. You know how Caesar gets you to follow him more faithfully? Fear. About wars and rumors of wars. We can see this in the newspaper every day for the past 30 years. It's always wars and the rumors of war because I can make you afraid, yet I'm the only one who can save you because I'm tough, because of this, because of that. I'm the only one who can do this. The only way that Jesus can deflate this power of Caesar is to take away the fear. If you're not afraid of his threats of war, if you say, ho-hum, then it completely takes away his power. Caesar can't function unless you have that fear of the war and rumors of war. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So it's not that the wars or rumors of wars are false. The wars are going to come. But... Don't be afraid, because once you fear, then you put your power in the hand of Caesar. The message is not that the wars will come. There are too many people who hear scripture and then pick up a social studies book and turn on CNN and try to figure out China and the four horsemen and the end of the world. All this is baloney. This statement is telling you, who cares? You're missing the point. The point is that these things don't matter. The point is that you have to abdicate the fear of the power of death so that you can become a subject of the kingdom even as you are under the boot of Caesar in this life. But you can't be under the boot of Caesar because you're afraid of Caesar. You have to be under his boot because you submit the way Jesus Christ submitted with love and obedience. Now, there's also going to be famines and earthquakes, and those are things that simply no Caesar can defend against. And so what Jesus is doing is pushing the war and also the famine into the single realm of that which God alone controls. And we see this in the beginning of Joel, too, where there's a little bit of confusion because we know that there's going to be a swarm of locusts, but then he talks about a great nation coming. But the great nation is only going to destroy plants. So is the great nation, are they actually a nation, an army, or are they locusts? The thing is, is that there will be a great destruction coming in many forms, and it only matters that this is all destruction in the hand of God. But there's always a great destruction. This is my point about fundamentalism. There's always going to be something. Why are you surprised? Why wouldn't you expect it? And ultimately, why do you care if you're a subject of the kingdom? There's always going to be famine. There's always going to be another North Korea in the news. Let's focus on what actually matters. 
which is the question of where you place your trust. And it's the beginning of birth pangs in this sense, because if we accept the proposition that you just laid out, Richard, that the famine is in the palm of God's hand, then it becomes like the leaven in Galatians and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It becomes an agitator, an agitating force when it's mixed with the word of God that teaches you the correct stance, that forms you in the word, that supplants your human reason with its own divine reason. Exactly. I was just about to raise the question, if we're talking about birth pangs, then we're talking about something being born. The kingdom is a kingdom where everyone follows Torah. The only way that you will have a people who follows Torah alone is if you separate those who trust in God, have faith, but trust in God, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's an army or whatever, and not in Caesar when another nation comes against them. Because for the person who trusts in God, whether it's Caesar or whether it's Caesar's enemy who starts the war, it doesn't matter because God started the war. That's the trick that the word played in their brain. It's God who started the war, whether it was Caesar or whether the enemy. And so what is being born is the kingdom. What is being born is a people who follows only the word, the instruction of God. Now, before we move on, the next time there's a natural disaster or something terrible happens and one of your fellow believers poses this silly question, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? This is a silly question. You can tell them that that question is invalid because if you ask that question, you're some religion, but you're not a disciple of scripture. Scripture is not interested in the human why. Man has eternity in his heart, but he cannot grasp it. You stick to Scripture, and Scripture tells you that whatever it was, it's because God is judging you systematically. And if you start going down the philosophical path or the ethical path of trying to figure out whether it's just or not by human standards, remind yourself of the cross. Where's the justice there? So please, enough with the silliness. How many times do we have to listen to people talk about, well, you just cause would allow evil to happen? Hurricanes happen because of a change in temperature and different temperature winds and things in the atmosphere. Wars happen because human beings are stiff-necked. Disease happens because we put chemicals in our water, or maybe just because we're biological creatures that are part of a system of death. As Father Alexander Schmemann used to say, the earth is a spiraling graveyard. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Again, Richard, he's not predicting the future. He's saying, look, if you preach the destruction of the temple, you're going to make everybody upset at you. Of course they're going to go after you. If you say that your king is the father of Jesus and not Caesar, of course they're going to arrest you. He's not reading a fortune cookie. He's just saying, look, cause and effect. His words force you to understand that effect in a particular way, which is to bear witness before them. You might think, 
Oh, why am I suffering so badly for believing in this, for trusting in God? Why would this happen to me? Oh, Jesus explained to you why. It's so you can be a testimony. Your duty in that moment is to testify to the truth and the power of God alone that you do not trust in Caesar. You don't believe in Caesar's power on its own. You only believe the power of God that happens to be manifested in Caesar right now or the king or the magistrate, whoever happens to be. This is the power of God. You understand that God holds your life and your death in his hand. You know that God decided you're going to be born and we're going to die. We have eternity in our heart, but we cannot grasp it, as he said. God alone understands why the span of our life is the span that it is. We don't need to understand. The only thing we need to do is trust. And when we come to that moment where our life is going to end, whether it's an earthquake or it's a court case, it doesn't matter to us because either one comes from God. Now, if the birth pangs that you described in which the judgment, the suffering, the tragedy, the war is the leaven that agitates the addressee of scripture so that the kingdom would rise, so that the kingdom of God would be inscribed in their hearts, then we know that verse 10 is of the utmost importance. It's as I was just saying, Jesus isn't predicting the future. He knows that if the gospel is preached and you're the one actually enunciating the words to Caesar, you're going to get arrested. So now, if you accept that it is scripture that you fear because of the birth pangs through the agitation of the small leaven, which is technical terminology that I'm bringing to Mark, not that it's a term in Mark, but it's, again, the function, that something difficult would agitate you so that the gospel could produce life in you, which is what Jesus is doing in Mark. In order for this really to work, what has to happen? The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the very first word that Jesus was trying to make his disciples understand. This is what Jesus was working so hard to do, was getting the word out and spreading the seed. And the only thing you need to fear when you're standing there in front of Caesar is not that Caesar's going to kill you, but that you might be judged by the one who actually has control over life and death, that you didn't spread the seed, which was your only job. And here's the difficult part in Mark, the fly in the ointment, as it were, in order for the gospel to be preached to all the nations, the temple has to be torn down. And that is why in Eastern Orthodox churches, the light of the good news of the resurrection leaves the temple as it does in Ezekiel. Jesus explodes open the temple and breaks free and goes out into the world. This is essential. The temple of the body of Jesus Christ has to be destroyed in order for the Torah to be set free, which is the mission of Jesus Christ, that this teaching be carried to all the nations. And the gospel is the invitation to read the Torah. It doesn't replace it. It's not an upgraded version. It's not the nicer version with a nicer God. It's the beachhead in Rome so that the Romans would realize from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel and all of our teachers 
that there is a power greater than Caesar's to which Caesar himself must submit. And it worked, Richard, because the disciples of this teaching overran the greatest tyrant in the history of the world by letting him overrun them. This is the novelty of the proposition of the Bible. The martyrs brought the Roman Empire to its knees without ever using violence. Because their job as martyrs were simply to testify to faith in the one who holds life and death in his hand. To him alone be the glory and the dominion and the majesty. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.